So hey everybody, welcome to our podcast. This is the podcast for the Sidewalk Film Festival and Cinema. I'm Rachel Morgan. I am, a, I think I'm the creative director for the Sidewalk Film Festival and Cinema. Last time I checked, I was. Do you not know? Yeah, some days I'm not <laughs> sure about any damn thing. Who uh, are who the hell are you? I'm I'm Corey Kraft. I'm a programmer for Sidewalk Film Festival and Sidewalk Film Center and Cinema. Let's talk about movie. Let's do it. Get ready for a five-minute fight. Five-minute. Round one. Fight. fight. All right, Rachel, it's time for another five-minute fight. Five-minute fight. I'm, I'm feeling punchy, so I'm going to take down a movie that you like. Okay, okay, let's wait till the clock gets started so we can be all fair here. Clock is started. All right. I'm not yeah. going to take it down too much because I just was kind of like lukewarm on a movie that you yeah, like. Yeah, it's hard to fight over a film that you're lukewarm on. But. So so I'm going to do my best. The movie is called Teen Spirit. It is the feature film debut of uh, a guy named Max Minghella, son of Anthony Minghella, the director of The English Patient. Um, so he made his film debut with this, you know, fairly inoffensive movie about a girl <laughs> from the Isle of Wight in England who enters a singing competition and sort of has a sort of star is born style arc. It stars Elle Fanning. She sings some like songs by Robin and Ellie Goulding. So to a certain degree, I can't dislike this movie very much. I would probably like it more if I hadn't seen Five million things just like it. And if these characters or anything here had any sort of depth beyond the usual sort of Cinderella story. Why do you like this movie? So I think much? this film is adorable. I think this film, first of all, it's it's really uh, lovely to look at. I think it's it's it, nicely shot. Yes, it's really wonderfully shot. It has these sort of really beautiful montages that has something about it that you are going to dislike. I know already, which is that it's got some little sort of fingerprints of Neon Demon. It's like it's almost like a it's almost like a teen Neon Demon in a way. There's a couple of moments that are just sort of pulled right out of that, which looks just spectacular on the big screen with the sort of neon bouncing in the in the background sure. of um, behind um, El Fanning and. Um, you know, I thought it's it was I think it's this film is built and designed not for you. No, that's fair. And probably not for me either, but it's built for like an it's built for like a 10 to, you know. I understand that's probably dipping a little bit young, but people don't they underestimate people by people's ages. I mean, sure. they just do. And and at least in 2019 they do. Um and so it's probably built for about a 10-year-old to about an 18-year-old audience depending on on the maturity of those individuals that fall within that that sort of um, age range. And it's just sort of, um, you know, I, I love that it, it's a female character who men are fairly inconsequential. Mm-hmm. I know we've got this um, Vlad character who, you know, really she just needs him for his age and his signature. Are there ridiculous things about it? Absolutely. The fact that she just stumbles upon a famous opera singer in a bar. I don't, you know, the well, fact that she... that'll happen from the, time to time. It might. Um, you know, the, the fact that she's makes it through to a teen competition, which uh, what are the odds of that? Um, but I think it kind of makes fun of these teen, of these sort of like American Idol type competitions in a way that I, I find enjoyable, but maybe not as obviously making fun of as, as you know, is yeah. could be easily taken. I'll I, say it that I didn't way. get that out of the movie. I thought it played it pretty straight and sincere down to Rebecca Hall showing up in a little cameo as the producer of the whole show. With like this Faustian contract for the girl that she has to she she you know that's the climax. Do I sign the contract and sell oh, out, or cute. do I you know go on with the people who got me here? And and it's fine. 
I, I probably would have enjoyed it more if I had seen it on the big screen like you did and didn't just watch it on a Blu-ray in my bedroom like a yeah, sad you w- bastard. Yeah, you would have. And you had the opportunity to. So don't even try to blame I'm, that. But I this didn't want to watch it again because I didn't enjoy it that much this is, the first I time. thought it was so fun to watch. And I do think it's like there's not that many films made for this particular audience. There really aren't. Because it's, you know, it's like there are some moments of sort of R-rated content, but at the mm-hmm. same time they're handled in a really safe way. So I think, you know, ultimately it's intended for, you know, a teen audience. And and I thought it was fun, enjoyable. I, I you know, I was sort of, it got to the end and was cheering a little bit for her, you know. And, and it, is it stupid? Is it silly? Kind of. But it's also, um, it's also just really generally enter- entertaining. And I think, again, men are inconsequential in this particular way. And I was really happy, spoiler alert, that there wasn't a real romance. Yeah. That wasn't what's driving this character. It's that not at the heart of the film. She's, you know, and I, I do like this sort of moment of like the question mark where it's like, is she just becoming the bitch that everybody can, you know, become? Or right. is she, you know, like, it, I don't know. It's this, I thought it was a lot of fun. So I mean, I'm prepared to lose this one because I don't feel that strongly about it. I, I just didn't have fun with it. I didn't find what you found in it. And yeah. if it's just not for me, it's not for me. That's fine. Sure. You know, I'll accept that. Uh, it looks nice. It, performances are terrific. Performances are good. Music's fun. The soundtrack's wonderful. I just couldn't get past the fact that it's just the same old, same old. And Is it, though? It, it I mean, I will say it's a, it feels a little different than other teen films. It, it really it does. It to me. It re- the, the, the same old musical sort How, of, oh, it's, you know, it's coming of age It's certainly not innovating sort of like A Star is Born, which you mentioned earlier. That's well, really breaking well, that's through the a barriers. That's a different five-minute fight. Well, which one, okay. one, one we've already had, but I don't understand how you can like that film and allow it to be just same old, same old. But Because you of its sort of expansive melodrama <laughs> sort of... Oh, that's not in here? No, because I find Elle Fanning's character kind of flat. <laughs> oh, I think you're going to lose. That's fine. But maybe not. Maybe Sam that's just fine. doesn't like Elle Fanning. I don't know. Yeah, Sam doesn't fucking like Miles Teller, so I <laughs> caught an undeserved L there. Oh, that's why you lost. That's yeah, why that's, you lost, that's for, sure, for sure. That's entirely why I lost. Hmm. Um... Okay, I'm just going to start off with saying Corey said there are 5 million things just like it, and so Corey gets 5 million points for saying that because there totally are. It turns out like the pop star wants fame, and fame turns out to be just a little bit evil and wrong. It's like, what? No one's seen that before. No, we don't need another one of those. Um, is it lovely to look at? Sure, but it's just neon. It reminds me of the tweet saying like, film just uses a tiny ounce of neon, and the critic just loses his shit over it. Um, Fair. Uh, yeah, that's totally fair. Calling it a teen neon demon or teen star is born is not really helping anyone's point. Um, and I feel like Rachel only likes it because the men are inconsequential, which you pointed out multiple times. <laughs> um, and it's this, like Corey said, it is the same old, same old for just a slightly younger target audience. And so I'm for sure siding with Corey on this one. Oh, well, once again, the men are inconsequential. I win. <laughs> I don't like men either. (laughs) (laughs) And now, a look at what we're watching this week. So, Rachel, what have you been watching? Okay, well, here's one for you. Um, I watched a film for uh, consideration for the cinema, which we've been trying to sort of get past having to watch everything we program and sort of put some first runs in that we haven't seen yet. And that is a bit of um, uh, an adjustment to make. But I'm still kind of 
looking at stuff. So I looked at a film that I, I'm thinking of, of programming called Celebration. Have you heard of this? No. So it's a film that I believe was re- was originally slated for release in 07. And um, and it is I'm going to I'm going to do this for everybody. So everybody get ready to get a good laugh in here at me. Um, and actually, let me get my my phonetic spelling. Oh, er- is this the Yves Saint Laurent? Yeah, you just stole my thunder. Sorry, sorry. Yves Saint Laurent. I actually watched a, a YouTube video to uh-huh. try to get this right. So I'm going to do it again. Yves Saint Laurent. We I'm can, still we getting can it plug wrong. plug that in here too. Just an audio. <laughs> just loop that. Anyway, I'm probably still getting it wrong, but I did watch some fashionistas say it for me and then tried to write it down properly. But yes, that is exactly what it is. It's um observational yeah. cinema verite, if you will, documentary um, that's really nice and efficient, sort of 70 minutes-ish kind of thing um, where you're just seeing him um and his and his world um it late very late in his career obviously um and it's banned you know that's how that's being sort of booked um as being banned but it's banned uh, you know for no other reason than the fact that the sort of the the powerhouse the powers that be um and certainly powerhouse behind that particular designer um felt like it was too intimate of a portrait of him and there's there is certainly some interesting stuff in there um there are some moments that are this is super worth watching. Um, there are some moments where uh, he's sort of, you know, again, he's older. He's created this world around him. He kind of does what he wants. And there's a system in place that enables him to uh, kind of, I don't know, be be reclusive and, and odd and, uh, you know, sort of let, let him do whatever, um, to, no matter what the pressures may be from the press and otherwise. So there's a moment where, like, they come in and his handlers are sort of settling everybody down and telling him he'll be down when he feels like it. He may not come down at all. And then as he begins to come down from the upstairs of whatever the hell it is that's the world in which he's sort of residing in, they're like, everybody move to the corners. <laughs> Which is one of my favorite moments of just like, I kind of want to just go into a room at some point that's busy and just do that. Just be like, hey, um, we've got somebody coming in here. Could everybody please move to the corners of the room? Yeah. And then just maybe nobody comes in or maybe it's you. (laughs) And then you look like an asshole. Um, (laughs) We'll see if that happens. It sounds like a good April Fool's. I need everybody. We've got Shakira coming. Please, everybody move to the corners. And then it's just Sam. Why would it be Shakira? I don't know. Just came to mind. Well, okay. (laughs) Anyway, Shakira is not in this film. There is a strange, another strange scene where he has a, a model sit on his lap, and it makes me really uncomfortable. Um, and then I think the bigger thing is this sort of his business partner is clearly his life partner. Yeah. Um, and is clearly controlling a lot, probably a lot more than what I think Yves Saint would like for, you know, or at least the, you know, the folks that, that are there to sort of support his image would like for you to know um, is being controlled. And so there's there's a lot of really cool stuff like that yeah. that's sort of a peek behind the scenes-ish kind of deal with the most sort of the craziest moment being a very strange toast that happens um, in which uh, the the life partner and business partner gives a, a significant length speech about how um, Yves Saint Laurent has chosen to, do you see how I keep doing that? Yeah, it's great. Has chosen to, um, you know, dedicate his life to fashion and to art um, and not to a lot else. And that he's made many, I mean, this is sort of supposed to be a happy birthday toast. And it's basically like, hey, dude, so you spent your whole life dedicated to this and have sacrificed everything else, including personal connection and um, anything that might be meaningful at all, aside from fashion in your life to this. And um, and now here you are towards the end of your life. And uh, isn't it lonely and horrible? Cheers. Happy birthday. (laughs) So, yeah, I can kind of see why the company might not have wanted that. Right. 
fried. It's a very interesting, strange toast. Anyway, um, not it's a very non-American style sure. approach to a birthday toast. Uh, I remember that. But anyway, I, I recommend it. We'll see if we we can land it on a calendar somewhere. I'd like to see it. Yeah, um, it's good. It sounds interesting. So so that sounds cool. Yeah, that's what I'm watching. What are you watching? Well, not a whole lot outside of the the ages of you know festival stuff and and class. So I thought I'd talk about some things that that I've taught recently in my history of film class at school. Um, We just finished a unit on silent comedy, uh, which is one of my favorite units of the the whole curriculum. And um, I I wanted to focus on, you know, we could talk at length about Charlie Chaplin and his great, you know, silent comedies. We could talk at length about Buster Keaton and his remarkable decade as an independent filmmaker. And the, and the films that he made, but the sort of third genius that goes often unheralded uh, from that time is a guy named Harold Lloyd. And Harold Lloyd uh, is, you know, less the the auteur of his films than Keaton or Chaplin, uh, but he was a very, very popular film comedian and star. Um, and he uh, made a bunch of really, really popular films that kind of faded from the public consciousness um, because he was in his lifetime really, really protective of them and really didn't want them to to see uh, re-release after a couple mangled uh, re-releases with some unapproved soundtracks. Anyway, the films of his that I show in my class are uh, Safety Last, which is probably his most famous work, certainly the most referenced of his works. Uh, but I think my personal favorite is, is another film that, that we watched uh, called The Freshman. Um, which is the sort of um, archetypal college comedy. Um, this small town geek goes to college with aspirations of, of being popular and suffers one humiliation after another on his road to, you know, self-acceptance and eventually, you know, he does become the big football hero during the climax. Of course, game. yeah, of course. Um, it this is just you know, Safety Last is is renowned for its extended, stunt heavy climax of of Lloyd's character climbing the the facade of an office building. Um, but I think the freshman pound for pound has more um, comic set pieces that I find funny. Um, for instance, I mean, this is a minor thing, but there's a really funny gag with a kitten um, who. Oh, so they got to, you. They got yeah, you. I mean, the I, they saw me coming. Right. Right. Um, the, the kitten uh, tries to climb up Harold Lloyd's leg as he's delivering an impromptu speech in front of the entire class uh, body who are pointing and laughing at him. And he kind of stuffs the kitten in his sweater. And then the kitten pokes its little kitten head out of the sweater and the mom cat comes up and tries to get the kitten and it's just a whole thing. There are a whole lot of whole things in this movie. Sure. Um, mostly football related, but not entirely. I think the, probably the funniest extended set piece, though, is at a dance where Harold Lloyd has um, his character has bought a new tuxedo. It is not entirely fully stitched. Um, so the tailor has to come uh, with him to the party. Um, and the as tuxedo, one as one does, the tuxedo is falling apart as the character is wearing it. So he has to contrive various ways to let the um, tailor fix his suit while he's wearing it, including like sort of half emerging from a curtain um, while the tailor is mending his his trousers or his coat or things like that. And it's super, super funny. 
you know, people know, again, a lot about Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, but Lloyd um, is only of, of the last decade or so sort of regaining his position as, as another important figure during that time period with um, those two movies plus two others, uh, Speedy and The Kid Brother, all getting restorations and, and home video releases from the Criterion Collection. They're, they're beautiful um, sets, all four of them. I have them, and, and they're, they're really wonderful. So I, I heartily recommend the films of Harold Lloyd for anybody who likes silent comedy but might have uh, no familiarity with this. So what do the students think? They, I think they preferred Keaton overall of the three, and I get it. Because I, I, I probably do too, ultimately. But Yeah, I got you. Yeah, but, but they're tolerating your the silent film, so. Yeah, no, they were, they were into him. Um, huh, I, that's surprising. Yeah, and I think um, overall they really liked The General. They really liked uh, Chaplin's um, City Lights. And I think they liked the two Lloyd movies we watched. Good. All right, well, Kyle will be here soon, so I need you to move to the corner. Okay. <laughs> Understandable. So that's what we're watching. What up? Corey. What's this shit? See how it's not the same? No, it's not. You're right. What's this shit? That's, it does add something. I'm on the stage. I'm looking at the screen up at the gym where there's other people doing things way more athletic than I am. Um, but I have to bring you what's this shit. So I have an excuse for going really slow on the tread and sure. on, the, sta- on sure. the stage and the whatever else. I don't even get on the stair stepper because... That thing looks like pure hell. Yeah, it's not fun. I mean, there's like a total, like, super duper buff person on it looking like they're going to die. So I'm like, yeah, that's not for me. Anyway, so I'm looking at the screen and I see, oh, let me, hold on, somebody bring me a bucket. Will Smith. Okay. Okay. And so I know you're going to get this right away so you because. Hate Will Smith. You know that. Yeah. You know that. And there is, there's good reason. Um, I think everybody really actually hates Will Smith. They just can't get in touch with that part of their self. Mm, I don't think that was always the case, but maybe it is Maybe now. not. Anyway, he's in it. I don't even want to tell you what he's wearing because you're going to get it right away. But then a woman enters the room. She's clearly a sexy woman. And there's an ass shot, which I found to be really offensive. Um, and then he's wearing Western wear and the painting behind him comes to life. And there's a shotgun shot that happens. And um, what is this Wild Wild West? Well, I mean, you tell me. The painting comes to life, and the and the shotgun guy jumps off of the painting, and it's stupid. Well, I don't know about paintings. I've only seen Wild Wild West once, and that was plenty. Is Kevin Klein in this movie? Oh, yeah. Is there, yeah, so it's Wild Wild West. Yeah, this movie's terrible. Um, this was the sort of disastrous flop that followed in the wake of Men in Black, which sort of made Will Smith one of the biggest movie stars there there is and ever has been. For at least a little while, um, reteaming Smith with Men in Black director Barry Sonnenfeld, um, a notoriously troubled production. Um, there's a giant mechanical spider, Kenneth Branagh, um, just really hamming it up. Salma Hayek, I think, is in this movie. Oh, boy. Um, not, not a single stitch of this movie makes any bit of sense at all at any point. Um, and it's just dreadful. So I'm sorry that you had to subject yourself to that while also exercising, which is bad enough. I know. It really was. I had a hot, I had Sade to get me through it, so we're good. Yeah. Well, that's probably the best way you could have watched any amount of Wild Wild West. It's it's truly terrible. When I walk in the room at the at the what they call the cardio cinema at the gym and I see Will Smith, 
I immediately want to begin killing people. But I don't. I don't because That's I'm not extreme. I, I mean, know, he's, isn't it? He's isn't not. It? But it, it is. That is my I really I have a, just he I can't stand him. I, Nothing we're going to have to have a conversation that gets to the root of this because I don't entirely disagree, but I don't have. Well, this is a good example of it. Why does this film exist? Why did they throw millions of dollars? Well, it's at this a star thing? vehicle for him. I mean, it's, exactly. an, it's, an, it's ego service, but I mean, that happens for so many people. Like, I can't hold that against him. Um, I don't, I mean, of course it's terrible, but it's not terrible because he's in it necessarily. I mean, he's not good in it, but you know. Well, anyway, good thing that I am able to filter out my rage <laughs> yes. um, because everybody's okay. They're all doing well. Also, if I tried to kill anybody in there, they would just immediately annihilate me because they're all a bunch of juicers. Anyway, that's what's the shit for this week. So thanks for uh, getting it right. You're welcome. What would we do if you didn't? We wouldn't even have this segment. We wouldn't. And now, fast film terms. So, um, hey, you know what the uh, what is the thing we do really quickly? Fast film terms. Did I do it right? You did it really slow. It's getting faster every week. Well, slow and steady wins the race. Okay, so I've got one for you. Do you know what an orphan is? A small child whose parents... Okay. (laughs) That is indeed, unfortunately, what an orphan is. But also without giving you a full sort of like, let's go over a lecture on script writing. An orphan is something that comes up when you're writing a screenplay slash script same thing really and that is that um when you're writing you know you have character headings and you have um action which is the the sort of um area in which you write about yeah. what you see on the screen and then you, of course you have a character the character heading is um followed by dialogue right mm-hmm. and so oftentimes that action interrupts the dialogue so in other words you know um cory is sweating because he's losing the um cor- like you say something character heading cory and then you know you say something and then it's cory is sweating because he's losing the um the argument uh-huh. right. um and then you continue to speak and that action of you losing the argument and me describing you sweating interrupts that dialogue sure and so you don't want that to happen without reestablishing a character heading because it gets really confusing when you're reading a script sure yeah. as me explaining this is getting confusing no but that makes sense that makes sense so an orphan is that that uh direction that's exactly um, right inserted in the middle of a longer uh line of dialogue Yes, it, without a f- character heading following, because the general idea is that we don't like orphans, right? Sure. So in the world of film, which is a cruel, cruel world, it's so cruel that you hate orphans. And so you just need to reestablish the character after that action has interrupted yeah, it. So but it's you. clear. That makes sense. That was the film term for the week. All right, let's go. Big, big bucks. Today's my day. Let's go. Big bucks. No whammies. No whammies. Big bucks. Big bucks. Here we go. All right, Rachel, it is time for the filmmaker lightning round. Ominous clouds are gathering in the distance. Looks like a storm's a coming. This storm. <laughs> so much drama. <laughs> well, uh, appropriate for this filmmaker, uh, one of our uh, most exciting purveyors of cinematic monsters. I'm talking about Guillermo del Toro, recent Oscar winner for um, his best picture winning film, The Shape of Water. So let's talk about him. Uh, Rachel, okay. what's a movie of Guillermo del Toro's that you really, really like? I mean, uh, you know, probably unfair to say this, but Shape of Water. 
Well, I don't think that's unfair, but but what's, what, what about that one? Well, I will say that I've probably only seen probably about half of the films under his director title on his IMDb page, so I'm probably not the most informed person to talk about this particular director, even though much respect. Um, but, like, I don't, you know, I don't really get into the Hellboy stuff, and I've seen some of it. It's it's sometimes in the cardio cinema, by the way. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think that that one is, you know, clearly uh, – one that got a lot of attention, so it was very easy to see, very accessible. And I love the color palette, and I love, you know, I, I, I am a big fan of uh, of the creature period, and so that's sort of the reimagining of the uh, of the um, the creature from the Black Lagoon, you yeah. know, um, really got me. I mean, I remember when they first started sort of doing teasers for the film, I was on board already, just because I, I, you know, I'm really like monsters a lot, and that's one that I, you know, and just I, I think it's so fun to sort of. You know, see him with the little eggs, and the, I don't know. It's well, we have a lovely. we have a, a a dancing creature from the Black Lagoon in our programmer's office at the cinema. So I guess I should have seen. Should have known. So yeah, that's why. I mean, it's a great. It's a really good movie. You know, it's got a great cast. It's obviously really visually imaginative and 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 brilliant. I think. Um, you know, I don't respond to that movie as much as I respond to a couple of his others. Uh, so my answer for this is going to be his. Um, I think it's from 2001, his um, Spanish language, uh, Spanish Civil War ghost story, The Devil's Backbone, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a movie I think is tremendous. I I think I prefer it even to his other sort of breakout, you know, foreign language sensation, Pan's Labyrinth from from 2006. That's the one that, that got a lot of attention from critics and from the Academy Awards and things like that. I think The Devil's Backbone is a little better playing in very similar territory, set at um, an orphanage during the Spanish Civil War, uh, right. the rise of fascism, and sort of all of the tensions in Spain at that moment are playing out in microcosm in this orphanage um, as um, people come to plunder a reported sort of hidden um, hidden treasure at this school. And... Um, there's also a ghost because there usually is in right. Torres movies. Right. Um, so definitely uh, one to stick with a with sort of this a particular realm of genre. Yeah. This this gentleman. Um, he you know that that's just a, a really astounding movie. Um, virtually on every level, probably not as visually captivating as something like Pan's Labyrinth or The Shape of Water, but he's in total command of his craft there for sure. Um, what is a movie uh, by him that um, maybe you don't like as much as other people? You know, I mm, lots of stuff. I, I mean, I would probably say that I'm going to go with the hell any of the Hellboys that he's yeah. directed. He's directed more than one, yes. Yeah, there are two. There are just two. Yeah. So probably that. Even though, like, I am a huge, as you are fully aware, Selma Blair fan. I, you know, put mm-hmm. her in anything. I'm going to watch it. But um, this is actually one of those that like it's hard for me to get through. Just not my thing. You're not a superhero person. Really. No, I'm not, and I'm also just not a like. I don't know. It feels a. It just feels a little tedious to me. I. I was, and I, and anytime I've sort of stopped and watched it for a few minutes, I don't mind what's going on. I think it's the better of that of of the for me personally. It's it's it it's way more enjoyable than a million other things that and yeah. in, in the sort of superhero world, um, and it clearly has that you know much darker sort of texture to it, right? Um, but I guarantee you that, I mean, I know from some of my students in the past that there are some super fans of that series and mm-hmm. I would go nowhere near that. Yeah. Hellboy two, the golden army is the one to, to go for there. Um, the first one is pretty good. It's kind of studio compromised. Hellboy two, he, he just lets his freak flag 
fly and the creature designs and makeup work in that are really extraordinary. Um, they're not great, you know, but they're, they're worth seeing if you're, you know, like the cinematic monsters and, and things like that. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I usually really, really like him. I guess I could say the first Hellboy. Just judging by the sheer amount of acclaim that it got, though, I guess my answer here is The Shape of Water, which is a movie that I really, really, really like. I didn't best picture like it. Yeah, you know I can I mean? see that. No, uh, I mean, I think that's probably fair. I think that there's some really gross things about the film, too. Yeah. To me, I don't know. I mean, I, I like I like it a lot, but there are some moments where I'm just I get a little off board with it. Um, so I can see that. Yeah, it just it never really emotionally hit me mm-hmm. the way it hit so many other people. I just really couldn't connect with that central love story, even though I think the performers are doing beautiful work, even though I think, you know, Del Toro behind the camera and in his screenplay are doing beautiful work. It just didn't hit me. And I can see that. You know, if it doesn't hit you, it doesn't hit you. Uh, a movie by him that, um, well, let me throw this in there. Is there a movie by him that you like? more than the critical consensus uh crimson peak maybe i do too that's the one i was gonna say i think that movie is really great i don't you know what though it's funny i don't really want to see it again but i did enjoy it when i saw it in the theater i did think it was quite a feat Mm -hmm. um but at the same time i left kind of being like i'm kind of glad i'm through that yeah that's mm, i don't mean that as as a like a harsh criticism of the film because I actually kind of enjoyed a lot of it, but I don't need to see it again. I'll I'll admit this. Um, I'm going to say something. You're going to be like, yeah, of course. Um, which is I'm kind of an easy mark for certain types of movies. And, of course. And and your response will be, I'm sure, yes, <laughs> all kinds of movies. That's the type of movie that you're an easy mark for. Which Nine fine. out of every ten. It's less than that. Um, but gothic haunted house movies, you know. You don't have to do much. Shocker. Yeah. If you're making a gothic haunted house movie, I'm I'm always on board to at least, you know, I'm always like 90% on board sure. already. I think that's like, a fair call, though. I mean, I, I, I tend to agree a little bit, but maybe not as much as you. But I mean, in a similar sense, like anytime that there's a, you know, sort of a babysitter ordering pizza. Right. I'm on board. Yeah. So. so, so I mean, you know, he doesn't have to do a whole lot of work with his gothic haunted house movie to get me on board. But I do think that that movie plays um, really nicely with the sort of gothic romance tradition as well. Um, it's it's like, you know, Jane Eyre, but with blood ghosts sure. wandering the hall of this really beautifully imagined um, mansion set that, that I think is extraordinary. I just rewatched that. Uh, a couple months ago, and and it holds up. It's really good. It's thirty minutes too long. Well, yeah, I actually do agree with that. It is a little too long, but um, but the visual imagination is extraordinary. Sure. Um, and then finally, a movie by him that you think you need to see again. Oh, again? I don't know that I need to see any of his films again, to be honest. Like, yeah. I really feel like I've gotten through it. But I will say, like, before I would see one again, right, which, I again, I'm not sure that I need to do because I don't have a desire to, but uh-huh. I would see the other half of his IMDb credits that, IMDb credits that yeah. I haven't seen yet. Is there one that stands out, like a title? Pronos, maybe. Yeah. I'm looking forward to taking a look at that. Um, hopefully, that's the other thing is I've sort of been putting that off a little bit because I want to see it on the screen at the cinema. Yeah. So that's on our list of things to put up there. Um, yeah. That'd probably be my answer, too. And we don't have to elaborate on that. But I hope that we do book it at the cinema so I can sit down and watch it. Right. 
Yeah, that's it. That's so my that's Guillermo del Toro, who is working on a remake of a classic noir called Nightmare Alley right now. That sounds like a, a cool title. Hell of a cast. Um, you're not going to be happy with the lead. It's Bradley Cooper. But oh, um, in supporting why roles. Why is it Bradley Cooper? In supporting roles, Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara. Boo. We've That's got not a, my boo. We've got a Carol reunion, though, on the set of this. <laughs> that makes absolutely no movie. sense. But I'm on board. Kate Blanchett can do whatever she wants, yeah. whenever she wants. And I would love it if she would give me a Including call. Including but... be um, <laughs> co-lead with Bradley Cooper in a movie. <laughs> That's the question. Is like, here's the math equation for the day, right? Does, does Bradley Cooper plus Kate Blanchett equal something uh like help uh, help me get past the fact that bradley cooper's in it well you're gonna see it because kate <laughs> blanchett's in it i'm gonna see it because kate blanchett's in it but i also like bradley cooper so you yeah know. you do of so, course you whatever. do of course you do uh, and guillermo del toro really great filmmaker so that has been the filmmaker lightning round the, the clouds are retreating uh, it is now safe to i don't know play golf or whatever people do swim and now we'd like to welcome Charlie Brown Sanders III to the studio for his segment, Film History Minute with Charlie Brown. Today I'm going to talk about a film called Sling Blade. Released in 1996, Sling Blade was written, directed, and stars Billy Bob Thornton. Filmed in 24 days on a $1 million budget, Sling Blade earned more than $24 million at the box office. Thornton was nominated for Best Actor, which he didn't win, but he did win the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. At the time that Sling Blade was showing in theaters, a short film entitled Some Folks Call It a Sling Blade went on sale at video stores. Made two years earlier, it was also written by Thornton and centered on the same Carl Childers character. Thornton had no say in the film's sudden mass distribution, which had been initiated by its director George Hickenlooper, to piggyback on Sling Blade's success. During the press tour to promote Sling Blade, Thornton did not mention or answer any questions about this short film. As it turned out, the two men had clashed over ownership of Carl Childers' character and were no longer speaking. Slingblade catapulted Thornton to stardom. At the time of its release, he had a small part in his friend John Ritter's sitcom Hearts of Fire, which had been his biggest career success. Prior to that, he had worked odd jobs in between landing bit parts in low-budget films. At one point, he was so broke, he ate nothing but raw potatoes for three weeks. In 1987, Thornton took a five-line part in a cable movie, The Man Who Broke 1,000 Chains. When the director asked him to overact, he went back to his trailer, looked in the mirror, and he says, Carl just popped out. The squinched eyes, the jutting jaw, even the bull haircut stared back at him from the mirror, and Carl started telling him off, his guttural voice punctured with gravelly arms. Right then and there, Thornton came up with a monologue that he eventually performed as part of a one-man stage show, Swine Before Pearls. During production breaks on Hearts of Fire, Thornton wrote the Sling Blade script longhand in a notebook. He finished it on Christmas Day at his mother's house. Many of his own quirks were incorporated into the characters, such as Doyle's dislike for antiques and midgets, and he says, there's a little bit of my dad in Doyle too, just flying off the handle in an instant. He'll apologize to you and cuss you out in the same sentence. Carl's walk was based on Thornton's 80-year-old grandfather, and he says Carl's language is from another time. I'm real interested in that kind of dialect from where I grew up in Arkansas. The old people I used to know talked that way. For example, nervous hospital is how my grandmother would describe a mental asylum. Slingblade was shot on location in Benton, Arkansas, which closely resembled Thornton's hometown of Malvern, Arkansas, with its rundown fix-it shop, modest frame houses, and of course, the Frosty Cream, which features a cameo from director Jim Jarmusch as the server. 
The majority of the cast were Southern actors, including Lucas Black from Decatur, who plays Carl's friend Frank Wheatley. Black had not heard Carl's voice until their first scene because Thornton wanted to capture his true reaction. He played the same trick on his friend John Ritter, who plays a closeted gay character. Ritter had a difficult time getting through their scenes with a straight face. For his part, Ritter added a bit of mirth to his character's name. As an in-joke to friends from the cast of Happy Days, Ritter made his character's name Vaughn Cunningham to suggest Vaughn was actually Chuck, Richie and Joni's older brother from season one of Happy Days, who was written out of the show and never mentioned again. In Ritter's mind, Chuck had a different alternative lifestyle that he was too ashamed to reveal to his parents, so he had changed his name and moved to Arkansas. Legendary director Billy Wilder once told Thornton that he was too ugly to be an actor and that he should write a screenplay for himself where he could exploit his less-than-perfect features. After Sling Blade, Thornton publicly discussed his conversation with Wilder, which was at a cocktail party where he was working as a waiter. Thornton got a call from Wilder who said he didn't recall the conversation but was glad that Thornton had heeded his advice. So, Corey, we have a segment that we only do occasionally. As a matter of fact, we've only done it once before. But here we go with the second time we've done it, and it's called Reflections. Wind chime. And we're going to have them add some wind reflections, and there'll be wind chimes there. As a matter of fact, we've um, we've hired the Bengals to sing that for us. I was thinking that uh, radio show Delilah. <laughs> love someone tonight. I hate love, love, hate, whatever you want to call it, Delilah. She makes me absolutely insane. Um, so I would love it if we could love someone tonight right there. And but that's been Reflections on Delilah. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> uh, no, let's talk a little bit about something kind of serious. We yeah. sure we get kind of serious. Um, and that serious thing is that, oh boy, Disney. Um, they've bought up Fox, right? That's not news, but they were just reiterating. They've bought Fox, which also means they bought Fox Searchlight. And they are planning to do what, Corey? Well, by acquiring 20th Century Fox, they acquired the vast library of 20th Century Fox catalog titles, and they're planning to lock them all away for uh, repertory theatrical exhibition. Um, I presume this is part of their strategy to shift all of that towards streaming online. Right. They're, their they're launching service, a, Disney Plus, launches yeah. in November. Trying to go head to head with Netflix, trying sure. to pull it all into how in house and, and basically hold it captive because they know that from what I've heard, I mean, we don't have that many children in our lives, um, aside from those who come through the cinema, but from what we've heard they will literally scratch your face off if you don't show them things like Frozen. Like you have to it's kind of like feeding a child. You have to you feed have to, them Disney films or they sure. they they basically eat your face while they're, you're sleeping. They're like uh Mogwise yep. in that way. They just come in flesh eat while you're sleeping exactly. if they haven't seen Frozen 2. <laughs> this is taking a direction I wasn't expecting it. Um, but point being that this is sucks for us. It's a distressing development all around because it seems to indicate that Disney as a conglomerate is not placing much value in the theatrical exhibition experience other than their big tentpole releases, right? Yeah. Obviously... Something like a Star Wars or an Avengers movie is going to get major play in the big chain theaters, um, in the multiplexes. But these vast catalogs that a lot of independent cinemas, you know, have drawn from for years to show repertory things, uh, they're as far as we know, and we should hasten to add. The policy has not been clarified At to all. anybody. It has not been made public. We are working off supposition and working off the fact that 
well, nobody can book these titles anymore. Yeah, we've been told basically by multiple sources that you have to be considered either a rep house or you have to be considered a first run house, right? Right. And so if you, there is no sort of intermediate, which is which, which is, is what we are. But it's insane because that's what most, most independent are, yeah. cinemas are. But if you're you're one or the other, and so you can either get slated for first run or you can get slated for rep, but you can't be slated for both, with the exception of a couple of titles, including my understanding is, um, strangely, A League of Their Own, which is one that's apparently an outlier. I know oh. it's not surprising. And then Rocky Horror Picture Show, which makes sense that because makes that's sense. one that would you know sort of have a foot in, in you know it, it, it may play at a first run house even at Halloween or there, what have there you. There would so, be like revolution. If they locked away Rocky Horror. Right. Well, and they are counting dollars on that one that right. go above and beyond what they that's the one they've recognized. Oh, theatrical is important for yes. this one movie we have. So, you know, everybody's you're exactly right. There's a lot of now I've also been told that um, it doesn't matter whether your first one or run or rep. They're going to pull them all. That's going to happen no matter what. So I don't, we don't we don't really honestly we don't really know what's going to happen. And from what we're reading in the trades, right, nobody really knows what's going to happen. There's a lot of um, I mean somebody some one person at Disney in an office right now probably knows, but nobody else really knows. And we're all sort of sweating it. I don't think that the ability to see something like Alien or Die Hard on the big screen, some of these classic Fox rep titles that that are I presume would be booked with regularity. I don't think that the ability to see something like that on the big screen would detract people from subscribing to a streaming service. So I don't understand Disney's thinking on this other than it's just part of a long-term plan to de-emphasize theatrical exhibition. Right. And if that's the case, that's really distressing. And I hope that they rethink that because ultimately by de-emphasizing theatrical exhibition for these rep titles, you know, that signifies the potential to move in a direction to de-emphasize theatrical exhibition for tentpole titles too. And that's not going to be good for anybody. I mean, Netflix kind of already does that. They have a lot of big desirable titles that the multiplexes won't touch. Um, because of their streaming availability, even, you know, they, they have a window of exclusivity for a lot of these titles, but it's not long enough for the, the theatrical chains. Well, it seems like Disney is going to start playing that game too. Right. And that's not good news for theaters. It's not good for cinema in like the, the cinema culture in this country. I agree. And, you know, it's there's a lot of hubbub. There's a lot of talk. If this interests you, um, you know, there's you can go read a ton of articles. But it does. It is a lot of speculation at this point and a lot of fear. But I think that there's I think that fear is probably, you know, I think there's probably some, you know, it's some truth behind Mm -hmm. what we're worried about. So anyway, you know, that's a. That's where we stand. It's harder and harder to fight the battle between, you know, how easy it is to, to sit home and watch Netflix or any of these other things, Hulu, you name it, and eventually here Disney, right? How much easier that is than to come out and actually have a theatrical experience. And it becomes more difficult when the content is removed from the programmer slates yeah. of options, right? So, I mean, look, I, I assume that if you're listening to this podcast, I mean, in all likelihood, you know either me or Rachel personally, right? But, but <laughs> You're probably but my mom or Corey's mom. If, if you are listening to this podcast, <laughs> you probably place some value on the theatrical experience. And if you do, this should be a concern because it is, it's sort of very slowly, but, but surely sort of choking the life out of theatrical exhibition. And that's a real, real problem. 
Yeah. And so, you know, not a, there's no answer here. There's just a conversation. And that's generally what this sort of little bit of a segment is about. So we'll leave it at that. But um, we're keeping our eye on it. We would love to hear your thoughts on um, what you've heard and what you think. And I don't know if there's anything. It's not one of those, let's all write letters and keep Felicity on the air. That's not going to happen. Disney doesn't care. Um, I think they go into a giant, you know, their emails go into a giant trash can that just then, you know, f- are fuel for Mickey yeah. Mouse. Mickey Mouse feeds them personally right. into a shredder going, right. huh? the whole time and that's all that happens so there's no action to be taken just um just uh collect your tears and we'll move on yeah and subscribe to disney plus i guess like everybody else in the country is going to in november it's going to make a billion dollars can't wait to watch that star wars show i mean i'm gonna do it too i want to watch that star wars can't wait for frozen 5000 reflections hello everybody this is kyle um this is a very un focused Kyle's Corner. Uh, I really just have um, three lines of notes uh, of topics to cover. So we'll just see what happens. Um, the first one is that um, it's a, it's it's sort of a movie going experience. But when Star Wars Episode One came out, everyone I knew was excited about it. I was excited about it. And uh, I remember um, my dad had a friend who like knew who owned the Summit Movie Theater and uh, they got that's this friend got to see a sneak peek of episode one like one or two nights beforehand, and um, and I'm like, oh really? What what do you say? And my dad just kind of gave like a dramatic pause and a little breath. He goes like, <gasps> he said it was good, and then had no other context whatsoever. No, um, and I think that's probably all that his friend said because you know as we know now that it's not a particularly good movie at all. It's really boring. But I think just everyone was in this brainwashed mindset that like. Um, that it was good. Um, it took a while for, for people just to um, accept the realities that um, it was really, really long and tedious and confusing and uh, childish and the action was uh, just, uh, it had moments, of course, but it was really, I mean, like the Matrix had just come out and uh, like a month or two before. And I mean, compare that to the longevity of, of Star Wars Episode One. Anyway, the reason I bring this up is I just remember being really excited about it and I was in uh, a- AP economics or AP government, one of those two. It was like I, I was terrible at both of them. I had no business being in those classes. And um, I don't think I ever like did well on an AP exam. It's just not for me. I, uh, but I, uh, I think I attempted to study for it uh, leading up to it. And I remember that the day we took the test was the day that uh, The Phantom Menace came out. And I already had uh, gotten tickets to see it that night. So that was really on my mind. So I had had filled out the whole, like, test. And then there's, like, one or two essays that you can choose from. And I chose one of them. I I didn't know how to answer either of them. And so um, I, I figured that this would probably work if I just write in the biggest letters possible to fill the entire page, just writing Star Wars with three exclamation points on the page, that I, my rationale was that whoever is grading the exam would totally get it. And they would, um, they just be like, okay, this kid needs a break. He's really excited about this. We're just going to give him the, you know, top score on this. And um, I, I later found out that I had um, not gotten a good, grade on that uh, AP exam, so I did not get whatever kind of like elective credits you would get 
uh, if you went to college the next year. So, uh, um, anyway, I was really excited. The Star Wars uh, answer didn't really work out. The, uh, the movie didn't really work out. And I remember my car broke down that night, um, halfway home to taking my girlfriend back home. And so, thankfully, AAA did work out. They, they, came, uh, they sent a tow truck pretty quickly, and that was probably the highlight of my day, knowing that I wasn't going to be stranded on the side of the road for a long time. Um, let's see. I have a couple more things. Um, it's been mentioned to me by um, a couple of people involved in the sidewalk organization that maybe it wasn't a great idea that I was bragging about uh, my history of sneaking food into movie theaters. And so um, to, I, I care deeply about the sidewalk cinema. And, um, and so I, I thought it would be maybe clear that I'm not encouraging anybody to actually sneak in movie into our uh our little underdog movie theater. And so, um, you know, don't do it unless it's comically large food. Uh, I, I mean, I think that was kind of the gist is what I was getting at is it was a, uh, it was a very large pizza box under um, a woman's coat. And it was kind of astonishing that it made it through the little ticket stub area. So, um, I mean, I'm, I'm talking, I mean, actually just don't, don't bring anything Unless, unless it's hilarious, okay? Um, but, but I didn't. But no, but don't bring anything seriously. Just, just don't do it. Um, uh, I mean, unless it's like, um, I don't know. Do you see Loaded Weapon One, where that kid walked out of the convenience station with a? Uh, it was like a eighty ounce soft drink that said um, Turbo Chug on it. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about, okay? Which you can't even really find, but if you can make one, then then go for it. Uh, but yet, seriously, don't bring anything into the theater. Uh, or, you know, just make sure that it's not obvious and stuff. You can cut that. Everyone, you can cut that part out about the, the last part where I said um, it's okay. Don't do it. Don't do it at all. Um, and thank you for supporting the Sidewalk Cinema. And thank you for supporting the concession stand. There's some concessions we're really proud of. Uh, have you tried the fried green beans? They're pretty darn good, eh? And um, lastly, I'm holding this five-pound book that um, you might have recognized back in the day at your local video store because it's what most of the clerks would have behind their desk, uh, behind the uh, cash register as a reference guide. It's called Video Hound's Golden Movie Retriever uh, 2019 Guide, the complete guide to movies on all home entertainment formats. And um, I got this when I couldn't find any movies I wanted uh, at Barnes & Noble and ended up going through the book section. And um, this kind of screamed my name. It was... Uh, um, just so comically large that I felt like it needed to have a home. And I was currently, uh, my my family was living at our in-laws' house while our kitchen was being renovated. So I needed some something to kind of keep me entertained um, during the downtime. So this here is, um, it's uh, 2,000 pages, uh, almost 2,100 pages of information about movies, specifically movies that are on home video. It's basically like the internet movie database printed out. Um, it has, first of all, about um, about uh, 1,400 pages just devoted to um, movies with uh, a very brief, like, nutshell synopses. Like, Tales from the Gimli Hospital from 1988 is given two bones out of four, and the... Uh, 
It's described as a smallpox outbreak at the turn of the century finds Einar and Gunnar sharing a hospital room. They begin telling each other increasingly bizarre personal secrets and develop a serious rivalry. Sharp dialogue with some equally grotesque imagery. Director Madden's first feature film. Oh, that's a Guy Madden movie. Did you know that? Corey, y'all? All right. Well, there's a... All right. First thing I looked at is a Guy Madden movie from 1988. Time to check out Tales from the Gimli Hospital. That's really exciting. So the book has already paid for itself. But one thing that... what My favorite thing about it, it has lists of, like, awards. It has about uh, 100 pages just devoted to actors and directors' movies that they're in. But it also has about 200 pages of... Uh, of what you would call it? Er, sorry for the little break right here. Yeah. So it has about 200 pages of. Here we go. And it has about 200 pages of categories where they just break out um, movies into um, hundreds of categories that they came up with, like Scotland Yard as a category, where they have about uh, I don't know about 100 titles right there. Um, science and scientists, um, snipers, school days, Satanism, satire and parody. So this is uh, oh, royalty, Rome-modern, Rome-ancient. So um, this has a lot of uh, wonderful stuff to be inspired by. So I'm looking forward to kind of going through this over the next year and familiarizing myself with it. And I'm hoping I can... Um, Find some new favorite gems that I can tell you guys about in the future. Um, thank you very much for... Oh, okay. We're not done yet. Sorry, y'all. There was a point to all this. Um, it also lists film festivals in the back of it. And um, there's a film festival listed called the Sidewalk Moving Picture Festival that shows narrative features, documentary shorts, and a competition for teens. So... Um, I'm going to write to them. I'm going to write to them and just let them know that um, the the festival is now called the Sidewalk Film Festival. And uh, I'll just politely write them and just let them know for their 2020 publication um, that they actually encourage writing to them uh, and they give us a, a, a P.O. box to write to. So I'm going to do this. I promise you I'm going to do this. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing if it gets updated for next year. All right, this is Kyle McCarnan. Thanks for listening. Bye. Kyle McKinnon is a feature film programmer for the Sidewalk Film Center and Cinema. Thank you for listening to Side Talks. We are your own personal Crockett and Tubbs. Yeah, I like this one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, this is my speed. You can be either and be cool. That's, hey, I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, check us out on social media at Sidewalk Film on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, use that hashtag, hashtag Side Talks, to communicate with us or send us an email. What's that email address again? Um, podcast at Sidewalk <laughs> Did you hear the comment? <laughs> so, what's going to happen now is they're going to put a little bit of Miami Vice music under what we're saying right now. Uh-huh. Just to ease the ease the pain of what we're doing, which is I believe podcast at sidetalks.com. Send an email and we'll see if it gets to us. <laughs> Thank you to Boutwell Studios. Thank you to Splash96. 
Oh my gosh, listen to how terrible we are. Come see a movie with us at the Sidewalk Film Center and Cinema. We got them. We can play movies. We have <laughs> movies all the time. Also, when you go there, tell Aaron Penhaus that I said to get some damn mozzarella sticks on the menu or else. By the time this episode is released, if we don't have mozzarella <laughs> sticks yet. Somebody's dead. Yeah, that's going to be a real problem. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs> Boutwell Studios Podcast Division. Your words, our expertise.